God, just thankful um, to be here this morning with the church. And Lord, I just, I know that as we open up the Bible in just a moment and read from it, we're going to be reading from some texts that uh, can be confusing and reading for some texts that can be hard to understand. And so this is that moment where we just need your spirit to help us, need your spirit to help us to understand what we're reading and, and how it relates to uh, our life. So Lord, I, I even personally pray right now just for your help as I teach. Help me to do that in a clear way. Just pray your spirit would, would take my words and, and make them exactly what you want them to be so that we can understand what your word is trying to say. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, um, here's where I want to start. There's, there's one thing, oh, there's, well, no, it's not just one thing, maybe there's a few, but there's one thing I have in mind that frustrates me about the church. And when I say church, I mean big C church. All right, so the whole church, not just Grace Hill, but I'm sure we could be included in this. And that one thing that frustrates me so much is that we just love to fight each other. We love to debate and we love to argue, and debate is a good thing in many ways, but then it just kind of turns into this infighting where many of us believe that, hey, what I believe and my you know, doctrinal positions are the right ones, and if you are off base from what I believe, then you're wrong. And we just love to lob grenades at each other in the church. We like to create factions and criticize others. And this morning, we are finishing our series that we've been in over the last six weeks called What is the Bible About? And this is the final sermon. We've kind of been going cover to cover, just asking that question. And so the topic that we find ourselves at this morning is the end times. And that is certainly a topic that the church loves to fight over. And certainly a topic that there are lots of different viewpoints on, there's a lot of passion behind it, and it can create a lot of factions inside the church. So, here is my goal this morning. I want you to know what the Bible's about. All right, that's been the goal of the entire series. And as we get into this particular topic, my goal is that you will feel equipped. All right, so especially if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time or you know about the Bible, you've been reading the Bible, maybe you grew up in church, I want you to feel equipped. I want you to feel like, okay, you know what the important things are when it comes to what we should believe about the end times. And I even want to equip you on talking about some of the different schools of thought and kind of how to organize that in your head. If you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're new to the church, you're new to the faith, or you haven't been, you don't know much about the Bible, we're so glad that you're here. And I hope that today is not confusing to you, because this topic is kind of, I'm just going to use the word, kind of a weird topic in our Bible. There's all kinds of different books in our Bible that talk about this topic in mysterious ways, and so it can be kind of hard to discern what to think about it. And so I hope today gives you just a little bit of understanding. And so if we start to go into some directions or use some words, you're like, man, this is a little weird. We get it. And that's fine. Just, just hang with us as we navigate through this topic. I want all of us to walk out of here 
this morning understanding what all Christians believe about the end and why that impacts our life. This series we've been in, What is the Bible About? We started at creation, obviously. And we learned about a God who created us and he wanted us to thrive, to live lives of joy, of fullness, where he would be our God, we would be his people. He would take care of us, he would provide for us, he would guide and direct us, and we would trust him to do all of those things for us. But it's not long into the scripture where that breaks where we decide not to trust God to do those things for us, that we want to trust ourselves to do that. God, I don't want to follow your ways. I don't want to follow your boundaries. I want to do those things for myself. And so what happens is this relationship between us and God breaks. And that brings brokenness and sin and fallenness into the world. And so as we continue in the series, we learned that God puts together a plan, and he writes about it in the beginning of Genesis. We see at the very beginning, he puts together a plan to restore that broken relationship. And that plan is not going to be through a law. It's not going to be through God giving us a bunch of do's and don'ts, and as long as we follow that, then he'll be happy with us, and then he won't do anything about it. That's not the plan. No, the plan is he's going to send his son Jesus to save us. And so this is what we've been talking about. And last week we were in the New Testament and we were talking about the church. What is the mission of the church? And the mission of the church is to take this message, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the way through which our relationship with God is restored, to take that and proclaim it to all nations, to all of our neighbors, to the world, that there is a way that we can be saved from our sin. There's a way that our relationship with God can be restored. And there is a way that we can experience the kind of life in creation that God originally created us for. So that brings us to today, the end When God is going to return, God is going to establish that new creation that he intended for us in the beginning. Last week we started in Acts chapter 1. And I want to go back to it real quick. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. Because this is right after the resurrection of Jesus. But before he ascends to be with the Father. And his disciples are with him. And they're going, "All right, Jesus, you went to the cross. You accomplished salvation for us. You've defeated death. Now must be the time that you are going to restore this kingdom. Now must be the time that you're going to do it. And so this is what the disciples are asking Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. It says this, So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time that you're going to establish the new creation? Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times, seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the disciples are asking this question that the entire world is asking, the entire church is asking, the entire church is fighting over is 
When are you going to establish this new creation? Jesus, when are you coming back? And Jesus says, it's not, it's not for you to know, but your mission now is to take this gospel to the world. And so what I want us to do is I want us to go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. That's going to be our main text this morning that we're going to use as we think about the end times this morning. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, the same question is going to come up. Jesus, when are you coming back? Why have you not come back yet? You have to understand in the book of 2 Peter, this is a letter that the Apostle Peter writes to a bunch of different churches spread throughout the Roman Empire who are experiencing heavy, heavy persecution. And they have been waiting and waiting and longing and longing for Jesus to return. So they're like, why has Jesus not come back yet? 2 Peter chapter 3. As we work through these verses, there are four things I want you to know about the end that 2 Peter is going to teach us. Four things that I'm going to tell you are what you should believe about the end. What all Christians should believe about the end. These are the four things that all Christians agree on when it comes to the end times. So here's the first truth, and we'll start reading. Truth number one that all Christians believe about the end is this, that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. 2 Peter chapter 3, start in verse 1. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Why hasn't he come yet? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God's, God's timeline hasn't changed. For they deliberately, the scoffers, overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water. He's referring to Genesis chapter 6, the flood. And perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. We're going to pause there. We'll keep reading there in verse 10 in just a second. The day of the Lord will come. So truth number one is that Jesus is coming back. And the question is, why is it taking so long? Peter is saying there's going to be scoffers who are going to say, see, he hasn't come back yet. I mean, think about the church today. We're 2,000 years post this letter, and he still hasn't returned. Why has he not come back yet? And Peter tells us because the Lord is patient. He has sent his church on a mission. 
to take this gospel to all the corners of the earth. God has not come back yet. Christ has not come back yet because he is not ready. There's more people he wants in his kingdom. So that's truth number one. Jesus is coming back. Truth number two is this. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. Look at verse 10 again with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, that's some common language that we see. Jesus says the same thing about the end, some other places. It's kind of this idea of like a thief in the night. We're sleeping at night, and a thief breaks into the house, and we have no idea that it's happening. It's just a way of saying it's going to come, and we're not going to be expecting it to come. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. Jesus said himself in Matthew 24, verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, most of you know that there have been many people throughout history who have claimed that they know when Jesus is going to come back. And 100% of them have been wrong. And all of them in the future who claim to know. doesn't matter how good their YouTube channel is. It doesn't matter how convincing they are. It doesn't matter how much Bible they have memorized. If they claim to know when Jesus is going to come back, they are wrong. Because the Bible said they would be. No one knows when he's going to come back. So truth one, Jesus is coming back. Truth two, we don't know when. Here's truth number three. He will accomplish justice. Go back to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of, um, I'm sorry, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Oof. I told you some of this language can be confusing. You have to understand the Bible is full of what we call apocalyptic literature. So literature that, that has, it's full of symbols and these imagery, and we, it's hard to discern exactly what they mean. And it's easy to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and think, oh, okay, what's going to happen at the end is God's going to set everything on fire. Well, that's not what I think Peter is getting at here. Most of the time, especially in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about a kind of fire, it talks about a refining kind of fire, a purifying kind of fire. I think what Peter's getting at here, it's a, it's a symbol, it's an image that, that God is going to come and he's going to expose all evil and injustice that has ever been uh, perpetuated and he's going to rid the earth of it. Cleanse the earth of it. Purify the earth of it. I think you especially see that at the end of verse 10, where it says, And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And the scripture is clear that at the end, when Christ returns, 
that he will accomplish justice. That if there's ever been any injustice perpetuated, at that moment, it will be dealt with. No injustice ever will go outside of God's sight and outside of God's justice. If you flip over to Revelation chapter 20, the very end of your scripture, we get a little bit more language about this. Look at verses 11 through 15. It says, this is the apostle John. He's saying, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, Christ. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible talks about when Christ returns, there's going to be a great resurrection of the dead. Both those who are righteous in Christ and those who are not. And at that moment, God's going to judge. And in that moment, the earth will be cleansed of all evil. It will be cleansed of death itself. It will be cleansed of the enemy. And justice will be accomplished. That's truth number three. And truth number four is this. He will make all things new. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are writing, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All evil has been eliminated. At the end, we get this promise that the new creation is going to come. And it's going to be a place where God is our king and he provides and he cares for us and he leads us and we trust him and we live full, joyful lives. I want you to know right now the Bible does not depict an eternity with God that's floating in clouds in some spiritual euphoria. The Bible depicts a future with God that's here on earth, a new earth, a renewed earth where you will have a body and you're going to eat food and you're going to have relationships and you're going to live a life that lasts for eternity, full of joy. Physical life is the kind of future that the Bible teaches us about. We get more about this in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verses. let's do verses uh, 1 to 5. John says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, this is apocalyptic literature. So in Hebrew culture, the sea was a symbol for evil. So when he says the sea was no more, it's a way, it's a way of him saying that evil was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The relationship is now restored in full. The reversal of the fall is completed. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. These are the four things that all Christians everywhere believe about the end. That Jesus is coming back. We do not know when he is coming back. But when he does, he is going to accomplish justice. He's going to rid the world of sin and death. And he will make all things new. This is, all right, so let me just quick warning. I'm going to go a bit into lecture mode. You're like, yeah, you yeah, already been in lecture mode? Uh, I'm going to go into lecture mode for just a second. Because I, I, I want you to be equipped this morning. What we've outlined so far in 2 Peter 3, and we're going to come back to 2 Peter 3. What we've outlined so far is what I'm going to call primary theology. Primary theology, meaning these are the things we must believe about the end. These are the things that are clear in Scripture. These are the things that Christians everywhere in union together believe. But, as you know, the Bible says a lot of things about the end times. And there's a lot of different books in the Old Testament, things like Ezekiel and, and the New Testament, Revelation, and, and you have Daniel in the Old Testament, and you have these different books that speak of the end times, and they do it in ways that are kind of hard to decipher, Hard to fit together. There's symbolic literature and apocalyptic literature and prophecy and all of these things. And it's hard for us to fit together. And so what's happened over time is different schools of thought have been developed of how to organize all of what the Bible says about the end times. And these different schools of thought are secondary theology. Meaning it's okay if we disagree on it as long as we're united in what's primary. And a lot of times what creates the fights within the church is we want to take what we believe about the secondary stuff and make it primary. So here's what I want to do. is I want to, I want to outline for you the various schools of thought, the secondary types of theology that have been developed under what we've already studied together this morning, because I'm not sure what, like the stories of everyone in this room. You may have come in here and you've been at churches where they are very strong in teaching one of these viewpoints. Uh, you might be super confused. Maybe you've heard some of these terms. And you're like, I have no idea what to think about this. So I want to equip you this morning. So I'm going to outline these four views. Now, a couple of things before we do it. Number one is they all have really weird names. Okay, we just need to get better names for them. All right. And so if you see these are these weird words that no one uses, well, we just need to work on that, all right? Uh, that's, that's the first one. The second one is this. There's, there's two terms that I want to make sure you're aware of before we get into it, right? So far, we've talked about different events that are going to happen. 
Jesus returning. That's one of the events, right? Uh, judgment, that he's going to judge uh, sin and death. That's another event that's going to happen. And we've also talked about the new heavens and new earth, how Jesus is going to make all things new. A couple of other events that the Bible talks about are this thing called the millennial kingdom. This is in Revelation chapter 20. And so what the Bible seems to teach is that before the new heavens and new earth are established, that Jesus is going to reign on earth in some way for a thousand years before that. It's kind of mysterious. All these schools of thought have different ways of thinking about it. And then another event the Bible talks about is the tribulation. And the tribulation is a period of time, it seems, that God's people will go through great suffering and persecution. And at some point during this end times timeline, that's going to happen. And these different schools of thought have different viewpoints on that. So I want to help you see this, all right? So hopefully, hopefully you guys can follow me on this. I brought my little clicker so we could go through this, all right? So I'm going to give you these four schools of thought. I'm going to start with the earliest, the one that was first developed in the church, and then we'll work our way to the latest one, okay? All right, the first one that was developed in the church is called historic premillennialism. All right, I told you the names are weird. All right, premillennialism. All right, this was developed first, second century. You're talking early church was developed, all right? Historic premillennialism. And so some of the modern-day proponents of historic premillennialism might be guys like Wayne Grudem, John Piper, Charles Spurgeon. They all hold to this viewpoint. So up here I have the church. That's where we are today. They believe at some point in the life of the church we will face a tribulation. All right, a period of time of suffering and persecution, an undetermined amount of time. And after that tribulation is when Jesus will return and establish his millennial reign on earth. Okay, so the judgment hasn't occurred yet. The new heavens and new earth haven't been uh, established yet, but Jesus is here and reigning on earth. And then at some point after that thousand-year reign, the, uh, the evil will be judged, sin and death will be judged, and there'll be the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. Those who hold this view believe Jesus is coming back. They believe that we do not know when. They believe that sin and death will be judged, and they believe that Jesus is going to make all things new. All right, so this is the oldest viewpoint the church has, okay? Now, not too long after that, another viewpoint came along called amillennialism. Amillennialism. So the last one's premillennialism, basically meaning Christ returns before the millennium. Well, amillennialism, ah, negates that. If you put the A in front of a word, it negates it. So they, they don't think there's going to be a millennium. This came in second, third century. All right, and so St. Augustine, proponent of this view. Modern-day people that are proponents of this view, people like Tim Keller, uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, amongst others, were proponents of this view. So they believe that, okay, we're in the church age, but that the tribulation largely has already occurred. Uh, Matthew 24 does seem to indicate that the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that might be the kind of tribulation the Bible talks about. And so they believe that that already really occurred for the most part, and that there's not going to be a millennial reign of Christ, that that's a symbolic thing in Revelation 20, and that really it refers to the church, that as Jesus reigns through the hearts of the people of the church, that is the millennial reign of Christ. 
And so we're simply just waiting for the return of Christ. i got to point my clicker this way. There it goes. All right, the return of Christ. And at that moment, there will be judgment at that moment of his return and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. This is the most simple viewpoint that the church has today. Amillennialism, second, third century. All right, to get our next one, we have to wait over a thousand years before a new view is developed. We'll call this post-millennialism. All right, this comes about the 17th century, largely by the Puritans. So guys like Jonathan Edwards, John Owen were proponents of this view. Uh, uh, early Presbyterians like Charles Hodge or B.B. Warfield as well, if you're into church history. So post-millennialism, so they believe that we were in the church today. They also believe that the tribulation largely has already occurred. And what they believe is that the, the church is going to complete the Great Commission. That we're going to get the gospel to all nations. And that actually there's going to be a great Christianization of the world. And so that's going to kind of bleed into this millennial reign of Christ. It's not a physical millennial reign where he comes. But there's this great Christianization of the world. The gospel begins to rule. And so they think things are going to get better as time goes on. And then eventually Christ will return the judgment of sin and death will happen and will establish the new heavens and new earth. Post-millennialism. All right, I got one more. This is the worst name yet. This one comes along 19th century. So this isn't even 200 years old yet. Very, very new. Pre-tribulational premillennialism. Some people call this dispensational premillennialism. All right. 19th century. What do they believe? Well, it's very similar to historic premillennialism. We're in the church today. Uh, that they think the, the tribulation is going to come and that the church, well, that it is in our future. But they, have, they, they kind of threw a little wrinkle in here that Jesus is going to come before the tribulation. So that's the pre-tribulational part. And rapture the church out of the world. So he's going to take the church out of the world. All right, And so just people who are not part of the church who don't follow Jesus are, are left. And then the world will experience the tribulation. And it's going to be a seven-year period, they believe. And after that seven-year period, Christ will return with his church and establish his millennial reign on earth. And after that millennial reign on earth, there will be the judgment and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. So proponents of this view, uh, John Darby was the first to develop it. C.I. Schofield brought it to America. Uh, guys like John MacArthur, uh, Charles Ryrie, people like that, proponents of this particular view. And this is the newest view that we have in the church uh, today. Uh, this view also made popular by like the Left Behind books and things like that. So many of you may have grown up in churches where this was, this was taught. Now, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that all of these views, all of these views right here, are secondary. They're secondary. Um, it's okay if you believe any of them. And if anyone tells you, hey, no, you can only, view, you can only be this one or you can only be that one, that's the only orthodox Christian view well, they don't have great knowledge of church history, and church history is not going to be kind to them. These are secondary views. These are attempts by well-meaning people, good theologians, to organize much of the mysterious 
scriptures about the end times. All of them, all of them agree with these four things. That Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when. He's going to judge sin and death. And he's going to make all things new. They agree with all four of those. Now, I do want to say this. The one view that tends to have the viewpoint of, hey, you need to believe what we believe about this, or you're, you're wrong altogether, is the last one, the pre-tribulational, premillennial view. Some of the folks, not all of them, but some of them tend to have that view, and the reason is because they adopt an interpretive philosophy that says, we're going to interpret apocalyptic literature as literally as possible. And so when they take that interpretive view, what happens is, is they get these very specific viewpoints. And so that's how they get this rapture of the church, and they get seven-year tribulation, and they get very specific in the details. And so they can then begin to say, hey, like we, we interpret the scripture most literally, therefore we interpret it the best out of all of them. But what I wanted you to see is that, no, like the church is very diverse when it comes to various secondary viewpoints of the end times. All right? And actually, that view is the newest view. And so for me, if you're like, well, Alan, I want to know what you think. Well, I'm hesitant to say that because I don't want to bind your conscience, but I get it. It's a fair question. So for me personally, I, I am very drawn towards the first two, historic premillennialism or amillennialism. I believe they both have strong biblical backing. I like the historicity behind them. They're different views, though, and so I've heard great biblical arguments for both, and so I hold them loosely because it's secondary. It's not primary. It's secondary. It's not primary. And so when you begin to hear people on the news or on YouTube videos begin to look at current events in the world and attach it to some of these specific views of the end times, we can listen, we can discern, we can pray, but we need to hold it loosely. Right? There's a lot of people out there saying that what's happening in Israel today is uh, Ezekiel 38 being fulfilled. And I can't preach Ezekiel 38 this morning. We don't have time. And so maybe, but most of the church doesn't think that. So we, we hold it loosely. We, we, we pray, we study, we ask God to lead and guide and direct us. But we have to understand that this is secondary the scriptures are mysterious. And we don't have all the information. God didn't reveal to us all the information to be perfectly certain about how this is going to go. And the problem is when we take secondary theology and we make it primary theology. That's a problem. Because when we obsess over secondary theology... What happens is the church turns inward and we fight each other and we go after each other and we write big, 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 long books criticizing one another and we lose focus on the very things that Christ has called us to. He never said, I want you guys to fight each other till the end of the age. He said, I want you to go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age, is what he said. And so let's go back to 2 Peter 3. Because in 2 Peter 3, he gives us how this should impact our lives. 
He gives us the application that we should have when it comes to studying the end times. So 2 Peter, I want to read just a few more verses there. Verses 11 to 14 specifically. This is what Peter says. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. What does Peter say how these things should impact our lives? Two things. The first one, he says, ensure that you are found by him without spot or blemish. Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when. And when he returns, we want to be found by him without spot or blemish. And the question is, how are we found without spot or blemish? Is it through a law? Is it through, no, we made sure that we had the right behavior our entire life? No, our entire series that we've been in has been all about the fact that God is going to do something to restore our relationship back with Him. That it's not going to be through a law. It's only going to be through what God is going to do for us in and through Jesus Christ. It is when we put our trust in Jesus who came after us that we are made righteous in His sight. We are without spot or blemish. That we belong to Him and we are confident that He's going to come for us. Jesus is going to return. He is going to rid this world of sin and evil and death. And those who have trusted in Christ and follow him will be given eternal life in the new creation. Dwelling with God. And so this morning, the, the question that we need to ask is not, oh man, what view are we? The question we need to ask is, are you going to be found in Christ? When Jesus returns, are you going to be found without spot or blemish? Not because you lived a religious life your whole life, but because you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you trusted Christ this morning? If you haven't, we want to walk that journey with you. We want to answer your questions. Come, let us know. We'll have prayer uh, ministers up front. We'd love to know if you are interested in placing your trust in Jesus. But the second thing Peter says, I don't know if you caught it there, He says that we can hasten the day of the Lord. The Greek there literally is to speed along, to hurry it along. The church, in some way, shape, or form, has the ability to hasten the day of the Lord. And the only thing I can think of is that is by doing the very things that God has called his church to do. Everything that we talked about last week. That we have been called to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That we have been called to go and give our neighbors a taste of the new creation. To serve and to love people and to share the hope that is within us. Uh, Earlier, I was going to read from Matthew 24, 14 and I skipped it. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations And then the end will come. 
That's the only indication we get of when it's going to happen is when the church has accomplished its mission. And he will be the one to decide when we've done that. But we can hasten the day by doing the things that God has called us to do. And so in closing, here's what I want to say about all these various secondary views. You know, sometimes we feel like we got to choose one, right? All right, I got to evaluate all the evidence, and I got to read all the books, and I got to, I got to, I got to choose one and, and kind of attach it to myself. Like, I'm all millennial. Great. All right. I think what's beautiful about these various viewpoints is maybe God is trying to teach us something through all of them. Hang with me for a second. Maybe through all the dispute and all the wrestling and all the studying of Scripture, God is trying to teach us something through the various views. See, my premillennial friends would say, hey, when it comes to how this stuff impacts our lives, as we get closer to the end, we need to be prepared for the fact that things are going to get worse. That the church is going to experience suffering. That the church is going to experience persecution. Are we ready? Are we forming resilient people with resilient faith who know what they believe? Are we creating churches where we're creating close-knit community, where we don't pretend with one another, we're not trying to impress each other with our religiosity, but we are actually following Jesus together. We're voicing our doubts. We're carrying each other's burdens. We're with each other as suffering comes, and we're following Jesus together so we can be resilient, because maybe the tribulation's coming. And my premillennial friends would be like, we need, as the church, as pastors, we need to prepare the church for that. And I say, amen. That's a good application coming from their viewpoint. And then my all-mill and my post-mill friends would say something like this. Hey, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. When Jesus says, I will be with you, and he sends us on the Great Commission, he means it. That the gospel is going to go out and it's going to change people. And if the church is faithful to its mission, then we're going to see the fruit of the gospel go into the homes of our neighbors and into the nations. And that we have a reason to be optimistic about what is to come as we proclaim the gospel. Right? They're going to say, hey, we're not saved from the world. We are saved for the world. And so we need to hasten the day. We need to do the very things that God has called us to do because that's going to draw the day of the Lord closer and closer and closer. And I say, amen. That's a good application. And you know what I want for Grace Hill? I don't want us to be marked by one of these secondary views. I want both of those things. I want us to be a church where we are building resilient disciples of Christ. Not pretend ones. Not good-looking ones. Resilient ones who know what they believe And they have a family of God that they can struggle in, they can doubt in, and their faith is going to be built up because we follow Jesus together. And if the tribulation comes, it comes. We'll trust the Lord together in it. And I want to be a church that that hastens the day. A church that boldly proclaims the gospel to our neighbors because we trust that God is doing something in it. He's bringing his kingdom in it. That's my longing for Grace Hill. And I think those are the exact things we need to believe about the end. That Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. He is going to judge the living and the dead. And he is making all things new. Let me pray that God would allow us to do both of those things. Build resilient disciples of Christ. 
and hasten the day through faithful gospel proclamation. Let's pray. Father, just so thankful for your word. And your word is challenging to us sometimes. Give us humility, God, when it's challenging. Lord, I'll be the first to admit, I, sometimes I get confused by all the stuff when it comes to the end. But Lord, I know this. I know you have called your church to build faithful, resilient disciples who know what they believe who have community around them that strengthens them, that holds them up. God, would you help us do that at Grace Hill? Would you help us to be a place that really cares well for one another? Help us to be a place that if if suffering comes, if persecution comes, we will be able to band together, that we will trust each other, that we would be there for one another. Help us to be a people, Lord, that are continuing to grow in our faith and our trust in you. But God, also help us to be a church that hastens the day. A a church that is faithful to have a bold gospel witness in our town, in this city. Help us to join with the church, the Big C Church, as we go to take this gospel to the nations around the globe. Lord, we believe that the gospel will be victorious and we want to witness and be a part of it. God, help us to be faithful to both. Not to get lost in theological squabbles, but to be faithful to the things that you have called us to. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.